Abraham when he would be the father of a great nation. When he looked up and the, God said, I'm going to make you a great nation and your descendants will be like the stars. You can't count them. There's going to be so many. And that one of his descendants would bless the whole world. All nations would be blessed through one of his descendants, pointing to Christ, Jesus. But then the story goes on to 10 years passes by, and Abraham's wife, Sarah, has no child, no children. Pretty hard to be a great nation with no kids, right? So that's a long time, right? 10 years goes by, God's promise. And so God reaffirms his promise to Abraham again at this time, and this is in Genesis 15. He actually reaffirms and states the promise again, and then he does this covenant ritual. If you remember, the animals were split in half, and they, whatever, and God walked through those. That, that's in Genesis 15. But still, Abraham had no child, no children. And God's promise is that you will be a great nation. So then Abraham's wife, Sarah, gets this great idea. And she says to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. I mean, to me, this is like Sarah asking, like, hey, go have an affair with my slave person here from Egypt. Uh, I give you permission. And, but in that day and age, it's not the way they understood it. It was basically a custom of that day and age in Abraham that was practiced time and time again. We see it later in Genesis with Jacob, who's Abraham's grandchild, and his wives and their servants. The same thing happens there. So it's this practice that was done in that custom, that day and age, but it was not established and, and ordained by God himself. Not at all. And so the Egyptian servant named Hagar slept with Abraham, and she became pregnant and started then to despise Sarah because now she, who was a servant, she saw herself as in better standing with Abraham, you know, the leader of this whole tribe, than the wife, Sarah, who was childless. Now she was bearing the leader's child, and so she started to despise Sarah. And of course, this caused all kinds of problems within the family dynamic. So then Sarah, what did she do? She blamed Abraham. She said, you slept with her and she got pregnant. It's your fault. And so, you know, this is often, guys, everything's our fault. Just get used to that, okay? Um, it's our fault. But that, that's what she said. And, and so listen to what, how Abraham responds to his wife, Sarah. Your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. <laughs> so Sarah mistreated Hagar, started treating her bad. I mean, Hagar's pregnant while this is happening, and so Hagar can't, can't take it, so she runs off. She takes off. She runs away from the family. And, I mean, talk about a mess, right? This is a mess now in this family. And at this point, God intervened and met Hagar on the road as she was running away and, and told her to go back to Sarah and submit to her because he had plans for Ishmael. He was going to make him into a a mighty nation as well. And so Hagar, he gave Hagar hope and encouraged her to go back and submit because he saw her misery. He saw how Sarah was mistreating her. And so Hagar goes back and to Sarah and Abraham and she gives birth to a son named Ishmael. Now Abraham was feeling much better. He had a son now, right? And God's promise is finally being fulfilled. Uh, because he has a son, and so this hope that he and his descendants will be a great nation. 
And, uh, but sure, you know, there was ongoing tension and between Hagar and Sarah, and, and, you know, but he could live with that. And so the years passed. Abraham loved Ishmael more and more as his one and only son at that point. Thirteen, about 13 years or so go by, and then God meets with Abraham again. And this is recorded in Genesis 17. So God meets with Abraham, and he confirms his covenant again. But this time he says, I want you and all the males in your household to do as a sign in your flesh of this covenant that I've made with you, this promise, to be circumcised. And this is where that whole practice enters in. All the males in his household. And so God clearly then states to Abraham that this Sarah, his wife, would have a child. And this is the child of promise that he has promised all these years. If you add it up, it's like almost 20 plus years at this point that the promise is being fulfilled. And Abraham laughs because he's thinking like, man, all these years my wife has been childless, and now when she's old and wrinkled, she's going to give me a uh, son? (laughs) You know, he's so excited that the wife he loves is going to produce a child. Um, And in this culture and that time, if a woman wasn't able to have children, it was a great shame. So it was a lot of pressure on Sarah as well and that she put on herself. And so she was going to give him a son. Now, the contrast here you see is Abraham and Sarah had had a son through Hagar by their own workings, their own plans, trying to fulfill God's promise by doing what they thought would help that along rather than trusting in God to fulfill his promise. But in the end, it brought conflict within the family, and ultimately God told Hagar and, uh, that Ishmael would live in hostility with his brothers. And, and so while Ishmael, God ordained him to come forth, there's consequences that's going to happen. Just like Sarah had this hostility toward, toward I mean, yeah, Sarah and uh, Hagar had this hostility. It was going to be happening between the two sons as well. And things, the point here is that things doing it our own way, rather than trusting in God's promise, it's just going to cause conflicts and struggles and more difficulties for us than just trusting in what God has promised us. So the child of promise, Isaac, was born, and there was much joy in Abraham's house. But their tension then between Hagar and Sarah just grew more and more. And so God told Abraham to send Hagar and Ishmael away from his family. At the demand of Sarah. Sarah was already demanding this. So Abraham went to God and said, what am I going to do? Because he loved Ishmael. And God said, send them away. And Abraham obeyed the Lord God. Imagine how hard it was to send his son whom he loved away along with Hagar. It must have been really hard. And Ishmael, who was the son of the slave woman, Hagar, represented Abraham taking things into his own hands and not trusting God's promise. And so God's promise was fulfilled through Isaac, through, the, through Sarah. He was the child of promise. Now this story I've just told you of Hagar and Sarah is used by the Apostle Paul, in a sense, figuratively. And he makes this clear in verses 24 and 25, saying, these things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. 
because she is in slavery with her children. So there's two mothers, Hagar and Sarah. There's two sons. There's Ishmael and Isaac. There's two covenants. There's the old covenant and the new covenant in Christ, Jesus. And the question is for us today is which of these do you belong to? Are you a child of a, of a slave, or do we live like that, or do we live as children of promise? The reformer Martin Luther uh, said it like this, I quote. He said, Those who try to achieve the status of sons and heirs by the righteousness of the law or by their own righteousness are slaves who will never receive the inheritance even though they work themselves to death with their great effort, for they are trying, contrary to the will of God, to achieve by their own works what God wants to grant to believers by sheer grace for Christ's sake. And then Paul affirms the Galatians and all followers of Jesus, saying in verse 28, he says, Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. And then earlier, if you remember in chapter 3, he says there as another affirmation, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It's not what we do or don't do that earns the right to be part of God's family. It's believing in what Christ Jesus did for us alone, having faith in him alone that then God adopts us into his family. We got to get it out of our minds. We can't achieve righteousness before God, even though we try to, like the Galatians. We believe it, but then we keep trying to achieve it which is what the Galatians were following, following back to. So which do you belong to? Are you a child of a slave woman, or are you a child of promise? The Gospel of Luke records a parable of two sons that kind of are images of this as well. And it's the, known as the prodigal son story. So if you remember, the, son, uh, the one son of this story goes to his father, and he says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. Give it to me now. And so the father graciously gives him, uh, splits up the property and gives him the money. But then that son goes off, leaves his household, the, his father's household, and goes off and wastes it on wild living, it says. Basically, he, he is self-indulgent. He just wastes it all on, on himself, and there's no more money left after a while, after a time period. And so he hires himself out because he has no money left uh, in a foreign country and to this guy, he, and he ends up working in this guy's farm feeding the pigs. And uh, he's really hungry because he has nothing. And, he, and he, so he realizes his stupidity and he says, ah, at least my father's servants get well fed. So he goes back to his father's home. He decides, and he's not worthy to be called his father's son because of what he did asking for the inheritance before. So he, he decides he's going to go home uh, and confess and ask forgiveness from his father and just ask to be hired as a hired servant. So at least he can have food. And so he does that. And while he's far away, still far off, the father, who must have been looking and hoping his son would return, sees his son from far distance. And he runs to meet his son. And he hugs him and grabs him and cries and kisses him. And then the son fumbles and says, you know, forgive me, Father, I have sins, you know, I'm not worthy to be called your son, you know, and then the father just accepts him back as his son, still. Doesn't say, you're not my son. And then he throws this big party for him, 
the fattened calf. And, and so there's, and he invites the townspeople, and then that's the first part of the story where it's a demonstration of God's grace to us when we come back to the Father. The second part of the story is about the older son. And the older son then, comes, he's working in the fields, and he's coming back from that long day, and he hears this music, like partying and dancing and all this stuff, and he's wondering what it is. So he asks the servant, and the servant says, oh, your, your younger brother has returned, and now the father, your father's throwing a big party in celebration that he's come back. And the older brother is angry, and he's frustrated, and he refuses to go celebrate with the, with the family and the friends that are there. And so the father then goes out to the older brother and tries to plead with him and says, come and celebrate. And, and this is what the older brother says. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. See, you and I have this same mindset and belief. When we feel burdened to follow the commands of Christ Jesus, like, oh, I gotta, I gotta obey this so that, because he tells me to do this so that I'm gonna somehow, my life's gonna go better or, or he's gonna make my life good or, or something, I, you know, I'm hoping and waiting to get something from God in order to obey the teachings of Christ our Lord. But doing things for someone we love is never a burden, is it? Right? We, we want to do those things for that person we love. It it's becomes a burden when we expect something in return. Like, I'm doing this, and so I expect you to do that for me. And it gets back to the whole idol worship. Worship of other gods, like the Galatians, that we do something for God in order that we get something back from him. And that's a wrong belief. If we are thinking our actions either disqualify us from being in God's family or they qualify us in some way to be in God's family, then we are enslaved. We are a child of a slave. We are in that thinking. We are children of Hagar, the slave woman. Elizabeth Elliot, um, I don't know, she, if you remember uh, Jim Elliot, or have you heard the story of that famous missionary who died, gave his life in Southern South America? Well, his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, recounts this fictional story of Jesus that conveys this tension between, or this thinking between, uh, this work-oriented uh, righteousness and this uh, response out of love that we have for our Lord God. And here's the story. It says, one day, Jesus said to his disciples, I'd like you to carry a stone for me. And so, and he didn't give any explanation. So the disciples are start looking around for whatever stones are nearby. And, and Peter, being very practical, he's like, huh, Jesus didn't get any regulations or size, you know, what sizes and stuff. So he gets the smallest stone he can find and puts it in his pocket. And so then Jesus says, after everybody gets their stones, follow me. And so he takes them on this journey. And it's about lunchtime, so they stop for lunch and it sits down and Jesus says a prayer and waves his hands, gives thanks to God, and all the stones become bread. And he says, this is our lunch. Now, of course, Peter's lunch is very short because he's got a little small stone. So, yeah, so then Jesus 
they're done, and so they all rise. He says, get up, and um, he says, okay, I want you to carry a stone for me. So then all the disciples are like, oh, okay. So they start going and getting stones, and Peter's like, aha, I get this. So he goes and finds a small boulder, and he lifts it up, and he puts it on his back, and he's struggling, and it's really heavy. And then he's got it up there, and, and then Jesus says, follow me. So they go for another journey. And Peter's lagging in the back because it's really hard <laughs> for him to carry the boulder, but he's like, I can't wait for supper, right? And then they get, it's about supper time, and Jesus takes them to the side of the stream, and then Jesus says, I want you to cast all your stones into the water. So all the disciples throw their stones in the water, and then Jesus looks at them and says, okay, follow me. And they start walking away, and all the disciples are looking at each other like, huh? You know, <laughs> what's going on? And then Jesus stops, and he sighs. And he, and he says, don't you remember what I asked you to do? Who were you carrying the stone for? Me or yourself? Like Peter, those of us with this elder brother attitude is we do the things in life because of what we can gain from it. We're not, who are we doing it for? We're doing and living life for the Lord Christ? Are we doing it because we expect something back from it? What is our motivation? What is going to be pain, the payoff for us? Is that our mindset? You know, and, and if we don't get what we want, then we end up being angry and confused and disappointed and what's going on? How come God didn't do what, you know, I did all this for you, Lord, and now this is what I get? Yeah, if, if we think goodness and decency is the way to gain a good life from God, we're going to be big disappointment in life because life is going to throw things at us and th things that we don't expect a lot. We may get sick. People we love may be killed. Think of the Ukrainians right now. There's a lot of Christian brothers and sisters in the Ukraine, and their country is being destroyed and before their eyes. Life, this side of eternity, is full of evil and in sin-infected world. We will always feel that we are owed more than we are getting if we have the mindset of being a child of a slave. So what drives you to do things? What drives you to, say, study hard at school? What's your motivation for doing that? Is it for your own gain? Or is it for the Lord Christ, who you follow? What drives you to work hard at your job, to work maybe nights, extra hours, on weekends, whatever it is? What's driving you to do that? Is it the Lord that you're following? Or is it for what you hope you can gain from it? What drives you to sacrifice money and time for your children? What drives you to, to invest time and effort in a relationship? Is it the Lord Christ or is it what we can gain from it? Is it the love for Jesus that motivates us? Or is it the hope that we can gain something from what we're putting all this time and effort into? God wants your heart to be on him because then we will only true be, truly be satisfied completely. So ask ourselves, what is really our motivation? Because if we hope to get promotions or a good job or a secure life or to gain enough big goose eggs so that in retirement we can just travel the world and do whatever we want, then our focus, we got to be careful. If our focus is on what we can gain and just 
make our lives comfortable and safe and easy because what happens then when we don't achieve that or that is taken away from us? What if somebody invades our country and everything hits the fan? <laughs> How are we going to feel about that? We'll feel horrible, but are we going to be angry at God because, man, I lived such a good life and all this happens, you know? Then we're, we're enslaved to this, we're as a child of Hagar. How can the inner workings of our heart be transformed from this anger and expectation that God has to give us something? How can that be transformed? And, and here's how. is when we focus on and remember the cost it was, it took for us to be adopted into God's family. God sent his son Christ. Jesus gave up his glory in heaven, his infinity, his infinite divine nature, qualities of his divine nature to become an, a human and to, to dwell among us in this mess and, and give up his own life in a horrible way so that you and I can be forgiven of the sinfulness that we have done against God. That is deep love. And when that motivates you and me to live for Jesus with everything we have, then life will be full and abundant, no matter what happens to us, no matter what happens to us. You know, there's a story I, I wanted to share with you guys uh, from this film that illustrates this inner transformation that begins uh, from a worldly perspective, but it, it captures an inner transformation because of an act of grace. And it's from this uh, movie, Three Seasons, which is a series of stories about life in post-war Vietnam. And one of the stories about this man, Hai, uh, who is a, a cyclo driver, which is a bicycle rickshaw, which is this. I'll help you to understand what it is. And, and he's in love with this beautiful prostitute named Lan. So there's Hai, who's the rickshaw driver, and Lan, who's the prostitute, beautiful prostitute. And both have these deep, unfulfilled desires. And Hai, who's in... Uh, in love with Lon, can't afford her because she is, goes to these rich hotels with the rich men, and so she's way beyond his price. And, uh, but Lon herself lives in grinding poverty and longs to escape from her life in prostitution. So she, she hopes to save enough money by prost through prostitution so that she can escape this life. And she imagines living this life in these elegant hotels that she always visits but never is able to spend the night in because she just, you know, does her duty and then leaves and the men stay there. And so she, she is rather, in, instead of being able to save the money and escape this life, she's otherwise or instead brutalized by the world and enslaved by it, these men. So then Hyde, the story goes on, enters this cyclo race, and he wins the first prize. And he gets all this money, this big bunch of money, prize money, and so he, out of his love for Lon, goes and pays for her, and he surprises her, and he takes her to one of the hotels uh, that she usually works at, and he pays for the room, he pays her prostitution fee, and he gets this room, he gets her into the room, and to the surprise of everyone watching the story, he does not use this time to have sex with her. Instead, he just wants to watch her fall asleep. And, and then he wanted to give and use the power of his wealth to give what she had hoped to have a normal night 
in one of these elegant hotels, you know, without any expectation of people abusing her and enslaving her in some way. And at first, uh, Lon is troubled by this act of grace because she thinks that High is using his wealth in some way to control her like all the other men have. But then she realizes that he's instead using his power and wealth to give her this act of grace, this freedom to experience what she had hoped to do, this, to be at rest without any worry about abuse. And it transforms her so that after that act, she can never go back to the life of prostitution again because she has experienced that freedom that High gave, gave her. I, I share this story because Jesus, if we take it in the, in the realistic perspective of Jesus, who has the, all the power in the universe as our creator, came and saw us enslaved to sin. And out of his deep love for us, he could have just left us there and said, you're getting what you deserve, because we would. But because of his deep love for us, he gave up his own life so that we could be freed from that enslavement and, and totally experience the abundant rest we have now by being adopted into God's family. And, and it's a tremendous truth for us to grasp and hold on to. So is it God's love that motivates us, this tremendous truth in Christ Jesus our Lord, or is it being enslaved by we still striving to achieve something for ourselves, to get something out of life or out of God because we're, quote, trying to do the good thing? Because in the end, it's who or what we follow that defines us as people, not the things we do or do not do. So the question from this text really for us today is, what is driving us to do the things we do? What is the motivation in our hearts that makes us do the things we do, the decisions we live every day making? Is it to achieve something for God or ourselves or our parents? Like, it pops up in me sometimes or my brothers or someone else. Or is it this tremendous love that God has for us that motivates us? Because remember, it's not a burden to live and do things for the person we love. If God's love in Jesus motivates us, then we are children of promise, and we are not children of a slave. If you are here today and you, you, you have, you're kind of grappling with this, you're not sure what it means to follow Christ Jesus as Lord, then talk to me about that. I'd be glad to talk to you, or anybody here who's a follower of Christ would be as well. And if you're online, you can just send me a, a note through the email or through the, some way um, on the website. There's a way to contact, and we'd love to meet up and talk with you. Let's pray together. Father, the truth, you who are the truth, have pierced into this dark world and given us hope in yourself. And we pray, Lord, that those of us who have committed to you as Lord and are followers of you, Lord Jesus, we would be more and more transformed every day into your likeness for that, so that we can fulfill, as you said to your followers, as the Father has sent you, that you are now sending us, and that we can enter into people's lives and bring your truth to them, that we can show the compassion and the grace that you have shown us.
that we can forgive as you have forgiven us and that we would be the embodiment as your body on earth to overcome evil with good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.